When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. TCL is a proud sponsor of the 1500 ESPN studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar along with pro football focus analyst Eric Eager. Eric, how are you? I'm well. How about you? I am doing really well. And you know, though, I've had an interesting thought about the Vikings this week. As I've looked at some of our our data, our analytics for how articles do, and I've found that the interest in the Minnesota Vikings from this fan base has just plummeted. And I don't mean from the Purple Podcast. All of you subscribers are still wonderful and listening to the podcast. But when it comes to the interest in, say, an article about how the Vikings match up with the Seattle Seahawks, no one seems to be interested in this game Eric, because the fan base, and I put out a a poll on this on Twitter, the fan base does not seem to be all in on this season in any way, shape, or form after that loss last week against New England, and really even going back to Chicago. So you tell me, uh, is, is that a rational response for Vikings fans to look at what's happened over these last couple of games, especially the ones against good teams, and, and, and kind of bail out on this Vikings team until they prove otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it, that's it's an interesting question, right? Because I think from the perspective of, you know, historically, I think the Vikings fans have been, have been, you know, fairly, I don't know, irrational about their team. But, you know, I, I think I said, I think I said this to you, you know, I, if, if, if you're going to quit on this season as a fan, I don't necessarily know if, if any of the other subsequent seasons with Kirk uh, are going to be any better. So, so why is that with, with Cousins? I, I mean, we've talked about him a ton, about the numbers in Washington and what he's done so far this year, how good he's been, how they could support him better, and, and all that sort of stuff. But what I end up feeling like, Eric, with four seasons of this for his starting career, as the sample size grows, and it's always 500. Did you ever see that graphic, by the way, the, um, yes. the, the, with the, the Washington football squad, where they were literally 500 all the time? It just win one, lose one, win one, lose one at any given point, like one game within 500. 
And the Vikings have been that same exact way this year, where you might get excited about a particular win, like against Green Bay, and the very next week, it's not there. And when I went back and, and looked at the tape, yes, John Filippo deserves a lot of criticism, but there were throws that were missed. In Chicago, there's a touchdown throw that goes over Stephon Diggs' head. There's yardage that's put up, but it's down a couple of scores and things like that. So, I mean, this, is, this has been a bit of the M.O., for Cousins for his entire career is that it's 500. It's up and it's down all the time. And I I guess I I sympathize with Vikings fans because a lot of times when you have a a situation like this, it's like, okay, well, what, what could be next? What quarterback might you draft or, or who could you sign or who could you trade for something like that? But with this, if you don't like Kirk Cousins and you don't think he could get it done, you are here. For the next three years, they're not going to make any changes at the quarterback position. Right. I mean, that's that's the difficult part because I think historically with Minnesota, you've always sort of seen, you know, when when they were, you know, when they lost in 1998, there was still Moss and there was still that excitement. When they when they lost in 2000, even though it didn't necessarily actually work out for them, they still had Moss, they still had Carter, they had Culpepper, they had come onto the scene in '09. There did feel like the door was closing, but you know Brett Favre was able to come back uh, another season uh, uh, to help them out a little bit, and so you know this last year felt a little rough because you sort of knew that everything was lucky for them, right? C- Case Keenum playing well, uh, a defense being number one overall, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what you end up seeing though is that you know Vikings fans, I think, sort of saw the writing on the wall that getting Cousins was a desperation move. This was something that, yeah, they, I wouldn't say pretended to be excited about, but kind of pretended to be excited about. And then when, you know, when it, when it becomes pretty apparent that there, that it's kind of a middling situation with him at the position, uh, you know, that that's kind of their, you know, the way that they've looked at it. And so, um, you know, I think that there are always things they can do better. Obviously next season, you know, they have to improve the offensive line. They have to, you know, replace Sheldon Richardson. Most likely they're getting a little older on the defensive front with Griffin and things like that. So, I think that there's some things to be optimistic about, but I think the ceiling is inherently there with Cousins, and it, it's just those those little things. It's just, you know, ne- not necessarily just being able to string a lot of things together consecutively, just, you know, not having a ton of turnover-worthy plays, but always sort of interspersing them equally across his throws and, and you know, not being able to sort of put together, uh, you know, like you know, being very characteristic of the Washington team with the win-loss, win-loss. It's sort of like with his throws, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. Yeah, and game by game, I, I did a chart in an article of his pro football focus grades for his entire career, and year by year, every line is very, very up and down. And, you know, the better quarterbacks, it's usually more consistent. Or even there are other quarterbacks who are so insanely hot or cold uh, that, you know, if you catch fire at one of those points, then maybe you have a chance. And, and I guess that's where I, where I want to go with this, um, is should they at least let this thing play out because there is always a chance. And I don't mean to sound like the dumb and dumber quote there. You know, you're telling me a ch- there's a chance. But uh, when I look at a team like this and I see how close they came at times to looking like a really competitive team in the NFC for half a game against the Los Angeles Rams where they're right there, for half a game against Chicago where they're trying to come back and win, it's not like they lost these games 
even against New England, it's 10 to 10 in the fourth quarter. It's not like they lost these games 35 to nothing. And I know that that's the nature of the NFL, but that's kind of the point, right? So the odds right now, Eric, look like they're pretty darn good for this team to get into the playoffs. Does this team have the potential and the quarterback have the potential to do something that would really surprise the fans who have kind of given up here? Yeah, so if they end up being the, the fifth or sixth seed, they're likely in the NFC to face a Dallas team or a or a Chicago team in the first round of the playoffs. I do think that those are two teams that the Vikings can you know can hang around with. What we've seen though is that if they get into the second round, the Rams are a team that I think are only getting better defensively, and obviously their their offense was able to outrun the Vikings on the Thursday night uh, in early October, and then. Uh, you know, the Saints, who did not play well against the Vikings, were still able to beat them by multiple scores. So, you know, if I'm if I'm looking at, you know, their possibilities this year, they're very bleak in the sense that, you know, unlike a season ago, you do not get a home game. You do not get a bye. You know, all this all the luck was sort of trending in their direction. And unfortunately, uh, you know, it was Philadelphia that was able to seize that from them last season, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, as opposed to. Um, uh, you know, the Vikings. And so uh, I think that that's also sort of why, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about, you know, looking at this from the Vikings fan perspective, that's also why I think that the year so down is that you sort of get it. You sort of know that to win a Super Bowl, you either have to be New England or you have to get lucky uh, for an extended stretch. And the Vikings, I think, had, you know, with the Minneapolis Miracle and so on and so forth, got their fair share of luck last year. And, and I think most Vikings fans would assume that that's sort of like not going to ever be bestowed upon them. <laughs> Uh, moving forward yeah it's not impossible to be that wild card seed and go on the road and run all the way through but it doesn't happen a whole heck of a lot and I, I think that it played really into Philadelphia's strengths that they were able to play at home for those two games and then yes. just had to win one against a New England defense that was uh, worse and decided to bench one of its better players for what reason we still haven't found out um, which was yes. which was very bizarre and seemed to be a distraction and and it wasn't the first time that Belichick had done something like that distracted his team with a strange benching but uh, aside from that one trend that I'm noticing just and this is really just from responses from emails and Twitter uh, mentions and things like that is that the goodwill that Mike Zimmer had built up over not his fault that Blair Walsh shanked. Uh, not his fault that Teddy Bridgewater's knee fell apart and then overachieved in 2017 with Case Keenum as his quarterback. Some of that has deteriorated this year, where it's the first time that I'm hearing a ton of criticism of Zimmer that the offense is really on him as well because he's the head coach and he's the one that hired John D. Filippo, and that you know maybe some of the way that he's managed things throughout this year hasn't been the best. I, I don't necessarily buy into that myself uh, because I I think that he was put in a tough position with a quarterback who's been this way for a while and uh, an inexperienced offensive coordinator. Maybe in hindsight they instead try to hire somebody else, but not his fault that Pat Shermer got hired for a better job. Um, what what do you make of, of coaching as far as its value in terms of wins and losses and, and how – can we evaluate that objectively? Because oftentimes it becomes, I don't like you know, that he said this, or I don't like that decision mm-hmm. on fourth down or something. like. We don't, we don't grade it necessarily on things that always make the most sense. So how, how would you go about that uh, in an analytical fashion? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, um, I think that there's kind of two things that a coach can do, uh, and, and we've seen it sort of a few different ways. So 
there's like, in my opinion, like the Marvin Lewis kind of coach, a coach that can take you from being terrible uh, to take you to being good, um, but may not be able to take you from good to Super Bowl caliber. Um, I think that Zimmer has at least shown all of us that that's, you know, he's capable of that. The 2013 Vikings gave up 30 points a game. They're the worst team in the league in that regard. They're now a, a very respectable defense, very good defense, depending upon how you, you know, you slice it. So, you know, that's the case. And then there are other guys who can take you from being good to Super Bowl caliber, right? And, and, you know, the classic example, and I don't know how much of this is signal or noise, but Tony Dungy with Tampa Bay took them from being terrible to on the precipice. And then John Gruden was able to get them over the hump. Um, there's been other, uh, examples of that in the past. Uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson was able to do both with Dallas, for example. But, you know, I, there's still the question as to whether Zimmer can really take them over the edge. And I think that, you know, basically his disdain for the offensive side of the ball at times might have been his worst enemy because, you know, he was very hands-off in the past. And I think his hands-offedness kind of allowed the, the door to open for them to get somebody like Kirk when it was clear that he preferred Teddy. Uh, and I think that that might be an issue for them moving forward. So, I don't know. I still think Zimmer's a, a terrific coach and, you know, the Vikings could do an awful lot worse, but there's still that question to remain, you know, whether or not he's capable uh, of putting them into that Super Bowl, because right now he's up against, you know, the Sean McVay's, the Andy Reid's, the Bill Belichick's, you know, the, uh, the those types of teams, which just appear to be simply like above the curve uh, with respect to, you know, taking great, you know, good and making it great. I tend to look at fan bases in the NFL as having something similar about almost all of them that aren't the Patriots, and that's that they really don't like their head coach <laughs> or their offensive yeah. coordinator normally, I mean, right? Uh, yeah. It just goes across fan bases that they watch so much of it that you see every single little mistake that it's hard to kind of remove yourself from that and look at it as compared to the curve, and I think where I would put Zimmer is exactly the same is, is okay. He's not Belichick and he's not Sean McVay. And maybe McVay has had some advantages here when it comes to uh, a lot of the, the personnel that he had made this all possible uh, as well with the, the offensive line and the weapons that they've put together and things like that. Um, but you know, not, maybe he's not in that, in that category, but just a cut below, but is a cut below going to be good enough when you don't have that level of personnel on the offensive side. And I guess my question, somebody brought this up on Twitter, really interesting question, Eric, is can an can a defense-only coach, because it seems Zimmer wants to be so hands-off, can a defense-only coach have a consistent offense year after year after year when you're, if you have a good year, your offensive coordinator usually gets another job, right? Like, is it even mm-hmm. possible to count on what they're going to have on offense year after year if the head coach is going to rely solely on what his offensive coordinator is bringing right i mean i think that when you've looked at you know some of the great ones you know mcveigh for example is mostly an offensive guy but if you look at some of the great ones tomlin certainly to the degree that you know he's been great he is you know he was very hands-off on the defense to dick lebeau at first and was allowed to sort of intersperse himself Belichick went from a defensive-minded coach to a guy who was basically now on the offensive side, it seems like, at times. Um, I don't know. It, it's tough because, again, like you can, you can like sort of lose track of some, of some like trends within a season. And, and we know that in the NFL, adjustments are kind of like everything, right? So uh, if you lose track of those, then uh, you probably you're going to have some difficulty 
you know, moving forward. And it seems like that's kind of been the case where, you know, through two games, the Vikings were, you know, a pretty good offense and then Buffalo happens, right? I'm not sure necessarily if, if uh, Zimmer was able to see that coming, right? They have a few good games in a row and then Chicago happens, right? And Chicago is a bevy of things. They, they, they turn the ball over too much. But, you know, they, they weren't able to, you know, take advantage of it, you know, the, the defense of Chicago, which is pretty good. You know, it's just, it's just interesting to me that, like, you know, you are only focused on one, you know, sort of, sort of silo of a football team. You oftentimes can miss things that if you were more big pitch, picture in your nature, you could sort of see. It does feel like they have chased their tail this year, where every time, uh, you know, it's kind of like that game. Do kids go to, you have kids, do they go to, like, um, like arcades anymore? Does that happen? Yeah, Chuck E. Cheese is a thing. Oh, okay, good. So everyone would understand then the game of whack-a-mole, right? Yes, or like, yes. Or whatever. When one thing pops up for this team, they fix it, maybe, like, like on defense after the Rams game, but then some other problem pops up. And that yep. problem has been that John Filippo, uh, I think his inexperience may play into this, but the, has not found an offensive identity and has uh, operated one of the, I think, least effective offenses in the entire NFL, which is stunning when you look at some of Kirk Cousins' numbers. But then when you look at how much they produce per drive in terms of yards and in terms of points, this team is not dangerous at all when it comes to the offensive side, especially when you look around the league and you see some of the more explosive offenses by comparison. I mean, this this team, you can match them up against a team like Denver and and you'll see that they're pretty similar in how much they score. That is not something we expected uh, long term. So I, I guess when you're talking about whether they could actually, you know, go through a playoff series, that would likely mean you have to face coaches of the same caliber or better and hope that the offense magically gets it together when they haven't been able to do so consistently for the whole season. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that and that to me is is, you know, sort of the mark of having, you know, a situation where what you're relying on is pretty unstable. Right. Defense is something that, as we have seen last week, the Vikings had to play with Marcus Sherrill's Holton Hill and Mackenzie Alexander as their three defensive backs. None of those uh, corners. So none of those guys started at cornerback week one for them. Right. So it's a classic case. OK, our defense is a little weaker. They were probably going to give up a score or two here in the third quarter. We need to match wits offensively. And, you know, we, we saw sort of the, the comedy that sort of was their offense in the second half of that game. Um, you know, the offensive line has been a, a series of patchwork things. I, I'm assuming they expected Elf line to be a lot healthier than he was, uh, that, you know, going into the season. I, I think they expected Riley Reef to be a better player, at least an average player uh, against some of the more elite pass rushers in the league. Uh, and then, you know, they just have really struggled. I don't think they meant for Brian O'Neill to play as, as solid as he's been so far. Um, and then the receivers, you know, I think that they've that the, the faith was misplaced. But in cutting Jarius Wright, I'm assuming they thought that Treadwell would be a, a useful player this year. And again, any one of those things pop up a season ago, the Vikings seem to always have an answer. And a lot of that might have been luck a season ago this year. Not so much. And, you know, Dalvin Cook is part of that, too, where they miss him over a stretch and then have just not really been able to find any consistency in having big games with him. Even against Detroit, it's one big run, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, they throw a couple screen passes to them. Some were effective, some weren't, but only a couple. 
even against Green Bay. They throw him the ball three times. They check down to him a ton of times against the Patriots, but can't find him room in space. Is there something that you notice that the better teams are doing to maximize their running backs? Or do we just have kind of a Todd Gurley situation here when he was with Jeff Fisher, where it was the offense and the offensive line was really bad, and all those outside factors are going to take a great, great football player and make him a whole heck of a lot less effective? Yeah, and that's the rough part about running back because you look at, uh, like, for example, James White, who, you know, I, I love as a player, but, you know, he's nothing to, you know, he's nothing special in terms of talent making a ton of plays against the Vikings because he's being used in advantageous spots, right? So, like, the Vikings here have a plus talent at running back, and because they're sort of unable to get him into space, I think throwing the ball to Cook, which is something they did early in the season before he got injured, and then they have at times, for example, against Green Bay, I think that's really, like, the the thing that they should be doing uh, more than trying to run him up between the tackles just because they simply can't, you know, get the pass blocking done. I think with respect to the running game, it is very much – similar to what you saw with Todd Gurley in 2016 with the Rams, uh, which is unfortunate, but also something I think that they can learn from this offseason. Uh, I'm really interested to see in Seattle Monday if they try to run the ball more for its own sake, because I think that would be a mistake, but you know, something that they've seemed to have hinted at this week. Well, and Seattle is not particularly good against the run, and, that, and that's where this sort of conversation uh, with the running game has been a little bit... I don't know. I, I guess I get frustrated with it because their run-pass ratio is worse than the league. And so you might think, well, I guess they've just got to run the ball more. But it's really, you, sh- you need to get the lead more. And then when you have the lead, of course, you can run the clock out and things like that. But um, it, it's been pretty obvious that their run-pass uh, ratio has a lot to do with being down by two scores in a lot of games. You know, against Buffalo, they were down by a couple scores. And and I think I look back at this a couple weeks ago that Cousins was number one in attempts when his team is down by two scores. So that's part of it. It's just I, I'm thinking a lot about where running backs just sit in our modern game here, Eric, because I watched the Patriots just do it brilliantly. And the Patriots, they've got like a Sam Gash, Lorenzo Neal <laughs> style guy back there. I, I, I think I have a new player that, you know, I, I don't have any like player jerseys since I became an adult. It's just, and especially a journalist. You don't but, like to wear other people's clothes? Uh, no, I know. I don't fault any fan who wants to buy a Vikings jersey, you know, and, and tailgate and do that. Like, that's, that's great. Have fun with that. Um, but, you know, as someone covering it, I'm not going to do something like that. But the fullback from New England, maybe. <laughs> like he was, James Devlin. He was, James Devlin was so much fun to watch because they kind of went old school there and they used a lot of two running back sets and they threw him a little nine-yard pass and he plowed in from the one-yard line. And, and I guess I'm not saying that the Vikings should use like C.J. Ham all the time. I guess I'm just thinking about all the interesting ways that Rex Burkhead comes in and he does a thing and James White's in the slot and I if the Vikings are going to have Delvin Cook I just don't think they can use him as a regular running back I I think it has to be as this playmaker sort of like the rich man's Cordero Patterson where you can use him all over the field as a receiver or running back throw it to him all the time don't just use this man as a regular running back who you throw the occasional screen to like in order to have success with him you're going to have to use it more creatively, I think. Yeah, and I think that's what the best offenses historically have done. Even like if you look at, you know, you're, you're for good reason very fond of uh, Thurman Thomas, 
And there were times in Thomas's career where he was averaging, you know, a little bit over four yards a carry for whatever reason. Maybe their offensive line was a little weak that year. Maybe, as you said, a lot of the run game, and you described this perfectly, is about game flow. If you're not ahead, right, you're not going to run the ball very much. It's just the way that it goes. And, you know, so some years Thurman Thomas would only average 3.9, 3.8 yards a carry, but then he'd catch enough passes to add value, right? Some years, I'm, I'm, I looked at Marshall Falk. Marshall Falk was brilliant for the, for the St. Louis Rams, mm-hmm. but, you know, he offered value by catching 86, 87, and 81, pa- 83. Like, he had 80 catches five consecutive seasons for the Rams as a running back. So, like, you know, that I do think that that's where, you know, the current running back finds value. You're not going to – you're just simply not going to be able to – you know, Jerome Bettis your way to winning football games the way that you were back in the day, right? Like Bettis didn't offer a whole lot except for four yards and a cloud of dust, and that was good enough, right? But nowadays, you know, offensive lines aren't as good. Defensive linemen, there's no bigger mismatch athletically uh, on the football field than a guy like Akeem Hicks versus a guy like Mike Remmers. So, you know, you're just not going to be able to run between the tackles uh, as much, and because, you know, the games are higher scoring now, too, there are going to be games where you're more behind, uh, you know, if you're an underdog than you than previously. So it's just not stacking up that way. And I do think if you have a guy like if you have a guy like Dalvin Cook, you, you really do have to leverage his ability in the passing game. You're not really getting what what kind of value he can give. The Steelers were so good with that. They the uh, Barry Foster to Bam Morris, Bam to Morris. Pettis. I mean, yeah. That is that's some ground and pound. Amos Zeroway. <laughs> yeah, he was like their change of pace back, even though he was just yeah. like a normal running back. But compared to those giant monsters, and then you know you get Tommy Maddox and Bubby Brister. I'm probably mixing up my my different times of when these guys played quarterback. But uh, Neil Neil O'Donnell, yeah, uh, Cordell Stewart, man, he would have been good in uh, in today's age. So let me let me ask you a, a sort of like big around the league question here of just like. What's going to win? Not who necessarily, but the team that wins the Super Bowl is going to win because of what? And uh, I asked this because last year sort of threw us off. You get Nick Foles comes in, and then it's, oh, remember, you can win with any quarterback, which is not true, and they were 13-3 and in part because of how great Carson Wentz was last season. But it sort of throws you back to, well, maybe scheme can win now. Maybe defense can win now. And everyone's always asking, is it – is it a great defense that can win? Is it a great offense? It's sort of the question that's always existed. And, I mean, the, the real answer is both. But uh, is there something this year that's sort of different when we've had these huge conversations about offense where you could see Dallas and what they did to New Orleans, like all of a sudden surprise everyone because they have this really good defense or something like that? Like what's, what's going to win? Yeah, that, it's a great question, right? Because I do think you can see one-off games like that Thursday night game with Dallas, um, and you know, and that will that will happen. And and if and if Baltimore goes into Kansas City on Sunday and wins because of defense, uh, again, will be another narrative. But to me, you're going to need to be able to take advantage of when opportunities strike and luck is given to you, right? So. The, the thing about the Philadelphia Eagles a season ago was they were they were extremely lucky in terms of converting a lot of third and long. They were extremely lucky in, in terms of converting fourth downs. They were extremely lucky in terms of, you know, the way that their schedule li- aligned. They faced an Atlanta team. They could never get out of their own way last year or this year, frankly. They faced a Vikings team 
that that gave them turnovers. And then they face a New England team that, as you said, messed with their defense the day before the Super Bowl. You have to be able to take advantage of all those. Last season, uh, Philly was something like 70% or on fourth downs. They, you know, they took advantage of all their plus opportunities. Now, how do you do that? I think you do that by having quarterbacks like Drew, Drew Brees, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger, Philip Rivers, because, you know, to me, that's how you, know, you just, you know, you put up enough points to take advantage of situations that are given to you. And so those are the types of players and quarterbacks and teams that I think are going to be what wins is those guys that are able to string together. And again, this comes back to cousins, be able to string together just consecutive drives, consecutive plays, uh, just big time, you know, just big time plays that'll end up, you know, distancing yourself from the other team because close games are a coin flip. But if you can blow a team out with, with offense, that's really what you want. Yeah, this uh, this year is going to be sort of a really interesting test case of how some of these offenses can operate in the playoffs because we've we've seen it go any direction in the past where the great offenses get shut down. I kind of go back to the you know sometimes the Giants beat the 49ers with Parcells and Walsh, and sometimes Walsh beat Parcells, and you know, and it was yep. it, it it would go back and forth, and that's sort of what's what's great about football is that it can be like that, uh, but you know the the consistent thing that we get. Uh, is you're going to have to get really good quarterback play, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be a Hall of Fame quarterback. And at total random, and Nick Foles had done this before in his career, he just played unbelievable football for two games, and that was all that it took. And yep. uh, that that's what makes it super random. And it, you know, in a lot of ways, I felt like it was a disappointing result because of that. Like, oh man, we got to see sort of this backup quarterback beat Brady. And, and then in another way, this is why every fan base shouldn't be bailing on their team when it comes to the end of the season, even if you're disappointed, because in 2012, the Ravens were in the same spot. They fired their offensive coordinator. Joe Flacco had one of the greatest runs in playoff history, and they win the Super Bowl because football's weird like that. So um, anyway, Eric, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to kind of lean away from this Seahawks game on Monday night in this podcast because of just where people are with the conversation with the Vikings. But give me your take on what we should expect here. What is the biggest factor on on whether the Vikings can actually beat a winning team, albeit just sort of another mediocre one? Yeah, so the Seahawks, I think their fan base is interesting because the majority of them seem to have gone the opposite way of the Vikings. They gave up on the season before it started. And then now they have, I think, uh, maybe undeserved optimism, where it's sort of been the uh, complete opposite for Vikes fans. Um, I don't know. This is interesting, right? Because this is a classic example where there is a clear advantage for one of the quarterbacks over another. Uh, Russell Wilson has the highest rate of what we call big time throws. So the throws that we give our, you know, plus one or better grades to, um, it, it, he's a classic example of how less is more, right? They've thrown less this year. They've protected him better. I think losing Tom Cable, uh, you know, getting a different offensive line coach in there has really helped. They don't have great receivers, but Tyler Lockett has really emerged. And I think he's the kind of speedy, small receiver that can give somebody like Xavier Rose and Trey Wayne, should he play, uh, you know, trouble, right? Being taller guys. So I think that their offense is going to probably do, uh, what they want when the Vikings struggle. They often struggle against the run and, and, you know, the, the Seahawks commit to that quite a bit. Um, defensively, the Seahawks don't really have the big names they used to have except for one. And Bobby Wagner is probably the best linebacker in the NFL. So 
Uh, I think a commitment to Cook this week might, even though be a good idea, not yield the results because Wagner might shut him down. Uh, but they're not as strong a corner as they used to be, so if the Vikings receivers are healthy, they might have a shot. I see it being kind of a close game, but uh, ultimately, I don't know, probably 60-40, the Seahawks you know, would win in terms of percentage. I do think that teams that play cover three against the Vikings are asking for trouble, though, don't you? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I think that's partly, it used to be a cover three thing was a hack for them because they had such a brilliant free safety and linebackers who were, you know, yeah, obviously Wagner's still there, and then corners that could really play that scheme. I think now it's more to cover things up. But, yeah, it, the league is its no no better look at how the league has evolved to sort of show the, you know, the limitations of cover three uh, in 2018. And as you said, against the Vikings, it's, it's asking for trouble. All right, Eric, as always, awesome stuff. Um, tell people where they can find your podcast. Yeah, so the PFF forecast is on Podcast One, as is this great podcast, and then uh, also on iTunes. Um, so, yeah, give it a listen uh, once you're done listening to the Purple Podcast. You are also you also do YouTube videos, and you tweet sometimes. I mean, it's amazing. We're all multi-platform. PFF underscore Eric is the Twitter handle. Yeah, I do tweet, and most of the time, I'm half joking, although I, I I can't. I actually, when when the Vikings are playing, I don't know when uh, the, the lines get blurred. <laughs> yeah, I uh, have seen you on multiple occasions frustrate uh, the purple faithful, but uh, only usually with uh, real realistic expectations for certain things, like oh, this season and all. But you know, I <laughs> we, we've talked about this a lot though, and and I I don't feel like I told you so is sort of the right tone to take for us. And for, you know, Courtney was talking about this, too, about the Super Bowl or bust thing, though. It was just really flawed. You know, when we, when we were talking about what we thought for this season, I think you came on and, and people got really upset with you for saying 9-7 and seven was a realistic possibility. And here we are. And 10-6 and six was my pick because I don't think any of us actually thought Super Bowl or bust was a real thing. But if you're a Viking fan and you see them spend what they spend on the quarterback, I don't blame anyone for saying, yeah, okay, well, this is what it should be if you guys are actually making this all-in move. I don't blame anyone for feeling that way. No, you're right. I mean, so there's, there's two different things. There's, there's, what, there's what your wishes are as a fan, um, and then you and I, I mean, I grew up a Vikings fan, but ultimately I'm pretty, you know, dis- you know not engaged with that as a fan very much anymore. And so you just look at it and you say, okay, Eight and eight, thirteen and three, the last two years. You know, split the difference between those two. Look at Cousins' history, right? Look at a tougher schedule. Schedule's been tougher than even we thought, and you know, it was just a rational uh, approach to looking at it. And I think the difficulty is, is yeah, the if you're a Vikings fan, you look at thirteen and three, and you see a new quarterback who's had some success in the NFL, and and you want like. The, the worst thing, and this is why, you know, it's important for people like you and me to be, not to be fans. It, when you want something to be true, you'll find enough evidence for it to be true in your mind, right? So, uh, you know, for, and, and, and for us too, like if we thought the Vikings weren't going to be very good, we're going to try to find evidence to support that as well, right? So you really do have to have a level head. And I think ultimately we were. And, uh, during the season, you know, it, it's they've had some ups and downs, but it's exactly sort of what we expected. Yeah, and uh, I the the ups and downs for me, that's a, a totally different perspective. Is sort of fun to follow along and try to solve the problems and 
you know, talk about them. But I imagine for a fan base that saw their team go to the NFC Championship, when you have this many ups and downs, it probably just breaks you at some point. And I think a lot of people are there, but you never know what can happen going forward, especially when you have this level of talent on defense. So I'm saying that we're not going to quite get into who to draft at right guard yet. No, no, not yet. It's not time for that. I got a bunch of tweets yesterday. Maybe you guys could talk about the offensive line and who they could draft. Not yet. We will. Trust me, there will be plenty of time for that. So, Eric, awesome stuff as always, and we will talk to you all again soon on the Purple Podcast.